Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. What has tech gifted us and what has it taken away? What about in relation to human rights and relations specifically? And how do we account for our own complicity? In this bonus episode of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, these questions are posed by Dave Eggers in the 2018 Penn H.G. Wells Lecture. As the Universal Declaration of Human Rights enters its 70th year, Eggers argues that crucial amendments are in order. If we want to make the internet a safe and free place, he says, we have to work on parallel tracks, the societal and the personal. He began, though, by setting out how, in the 1980s and 90s, new technology made possible exciting ventures that would erstwhile have been out of reach. So um, I bought the uh, first Apple computers back in the 80s. In 1987, I got the SE, which I brought to college. That computer and its successors made me a graphic designer and allowed me to become a publisher. It introduced me to typography, to leading and kerning and page composition, and made possible everything I wanted to do as a designer but couldn't do manually. I was a sloppy cutter, a sloppy paster, clumsy with a ruler and a knife. But the Mac allowed me to realize any idea with pinpoint accuracy and professionalize any project to a degree impossible for me with analog tools. I moved to San Francisco in 1992, and about a year later, some friends and I rented a space in a warehouse in the city's South Park neighborhood. We worked as graphic designers to pay the rent, but our central hope was to start a generation-defining magazine, which we called Might. Anybody? No? Didn't define a generation, apparently. (laughs) Using those same Mac-based desktop publishing tools I learned in high school and college. South Park at the time was full of tech startups and publications created to document them. Boing Boing rented the desks next to ours. Wired magazine had just launched and was on the third floor. There was a punching bag hanging from an exposed beam. There was yoga. There were raves. There was Burning Man. (laughs) We all socialized together, we and the tech people, even though our coterie saw the tech world through a more skeptical eye. We even published an issue of Might that gently parodied our upstairs neighbors, Wired and other devout future fetishists. On our cover, we asked the question, the future, is it coming? (laughs) We were amused that the technologists around us believed that every problem had a technological solution, 
but we admired their passion and their utopian hopes for the web as a democratizing force for good. But harbingers of a different future began to arrive. I had a part-time job at Salon.com, one of the web's first all-digital magazines. When I arrived a few months after the site launched, there were about a dozen employees, most of them refugees from print newspapers like the San Francisco Examiner. To Salon's founders, the prospect of publishing excellent writing every day without having to pay printing costs held great promise. It was like a farmer being able to grow crops without land. One day, one of my coworkers brought me over to his desk. Check this out, he said. He showed me a new website on which we could watch other web users search the web. I don't even remember this. <laughs> this is a real thing. It was anonymized, but the searches were real. The experience of seeing someone type questions into the interface and then watch their follow-ups and clarifications going deeper and always stranger was both riveting and nauseating. Imagine the physical world equivalent. Imagine that someone had built the world's greatest library, a magnificent building in the middle of the city with laddered shelves and vaulted ceilings. Now imagine that within it, someone else had constructed a two-way mirror through which visitors to the building could surreptitiously watch other people roam the stacks and leaf through the card catalog. Such a feature would have been considered a bit bizarre and probably would not have passed zoning codes. But the web, even in its early years, seemed to attract some of the world's darker minds and to warp everyone else into more needy, more intrusive, privacy oblivious versions of themselves. Think of it as situational internet madness syndrome, or sim syndrome, I'm trying to coin this term, wherein, I'm going to use it a few more times, so just get used to it, write it down, wherein even the most sane people are warped. Actually, that's a bad edit. I just uh, realized that I said that above. All right, so we got sim syndrome. I do this all the time, that's why I can't give lectures. I'm, I bring the pen and I'm working on it. That day at Salon, watching the site that allowed us to watch others, my first, my first thought was, what kind of mind would think up setting up a site like that? And my second thought was, Lord God, this whole internet thing could turn out poorly. The popular mythology of the last 10 years has painted the world's tech users as a gentle and innocent race like the Eloi, being bred and later devoured by the tech giants who, like Morlocks, you guys getting the references there? Um, live a sunless existence, cynically feeding on a lesser race. Come to think of it, that's not such a bad metaphor, but it's not entirely accurate. We are not the alloy. We have power. In some cases, we have all the power, and we can remake the internet if we take a hard look in the mirror and judge ourselves clearly and fairly. I seek to prove to you that digital tools generally degrade us, Specifically, they make us into needy maniacs, Gesundheit. and that the tech companies that we distrust act no better and no worse than we ourselves act with these tools. Our complicity in the rise of these companies and in their increasing power is impossible to avoid or deny. Every bit of power they have is power we have given them. Our addiction to data, our willingness to accept numbers to explain every problem and define every person, will lead humanity to an existential crisis. When we accept the assigning of numerical valuations to humans, 
then we teeter on the abyss. When we cede most or all of our decisions and destinies to algorithms, humans will lose their sense of purpose and power, and this loss of purpose and power will result in a numbing malaise that will overtake the human world and send us into that abyss. This is dark for Christmas <laughs> season, isn't it? I got to, uh, it's already been said though, so it gets lighter. Mystery and nuance is essential to our sense of balance, and the more we replace the unknowable parts of life with rankings and scores, nuance with, false, with the false god of data, the more we willingly evolve from mammals to robots, the more our ancient psyches will lose their will to live. It's still dark. It's already happening all over the industrialized world with suicide rates rising at alarming rates corresponding directly with the mass supplanting of the physical with the digital. But first, another story about situational internet madness. A few years after that moment at Salon.com with my coworker and the search voyeurism, I got an email in my inbox. It was from a friend I'll call Roderick. I had an Earthlink account then and a dial-up modem, and the process of receiving mail was so slow that I got my mail just a few times a day and usually took my sweet time in replying. I saw the message from Roderick, read it, but decided to answer it the next week. A few days later, though, I happened to see Roderick on the street, and he said, hey, I sent you an email a few days ago. Why haven't you answered it? I told him that I hadn't checked my email in a few days. <laughs> we lie to our friends. This is okay. And when I said this, Roderick's face twisted into a tight and tortured knot. I happen to know, he said that you did get my email and that you opened it 22 minutes after I sent it, <laughs> which means that you must have read it. Now, just as with the incident at Salon, something pivoted in that moment. First of all, I had the thought that I would probably need to take a break from this particular friend, <laughs> either temporarily or permanently. But more important in my discussion here, it exemplified this, the same chain of events at work in the Salon incident. Some engineer realizes how easy it would be to create a tool giving access to information previously private. The engineer presents it to his or her bosses who approve its release without much regard for its ethical implications. And because it's free and easy to use, users use it, and just like the bosses who approved its release, the users don't think much about the ethics involved. But in using this software, this friend of mine, who had been relatively sane before that, he was a creative type, so I guess that's relative, had taken a hard pivot toward behavior that in any other era would have been considered obsessive, intrusive, and by most standards, strange. Consider the pre-digital version of what Roderick had done. Before email, he would have sent me a letter in the physical mail. If he were hell-bent on knowing exactly when I opened his letter, he would have had to walk or drive over to my house and find a hiding place by my mailbox, most likely in a bush, where he could spend the next few days subsisting on nuts and berries <laughs> until the joyful juncture when the mail carrier delivered his letter and when I went to the mailbox and opened it. But Roderick probably would not have done all this. Such behavior, after all, would have been considered outside social norms. Hiding outside my house would have violated my privacy and would have made Roderick seem odd. Community standards of decency and sanity not to mention laws protecting property and the inviolability of the federal mail would have colluded to make Roderick's letter-watching project unfeasible. 
but because he could use free software from the comfort of his home without having to hide in a bush by my mailbox, it enabled Roderick's situational madness. In short, the availability of a digital tool had changed him. He'd gone from a friend who I'd see once a week for a beer to a man capable with these digital tools of alarming neediness and the vaulting over social norms. He'd gone from being a friend to being a spy, and his right to know had superseded my right to privacy. And to a great extent, this is the story of how the internet changes us. We want more information, often information to which we're not entitled. We grow to need more, more answers, more data, and more approval. Each seeming answer only makes us need more, and we ask and ask and seek and seek until in our fever we've crossed a dozen boundaries of propriety and common sense. Online, the most polite and thoughtful people in the physical world become utterly careless and oblivious to norms of etiquette. And I'm not talking about normal people anonymously posting horrifying things in chat rooms and on Twitter. That's another oft-told aspect of online life. I'm talking about everyday breaches of common decency that the most considerate people commit without a trace of malice. The other day I received from one of the most gentlemanly people I know a short message inquiring about the welfare of a mutual friend. But he'd embedded below this inquiry a four-page exchange he'd been having with another mutual friend. That exchange covered a, highly, a dozen highly personal topics, including passages wherein they discussed other mutual friends and their problems with infidelity, kidney stones, and eczema. <laughs> None of it, I assume, was intended to be seen by me. This has happened hundreds of times over the years. The pre-digital equivalent of this would have, been in, would have entailed my gentlemanly friend handwriting me a short note on paper, but before putting it in an envelope to send, deciding he needed to add 20 or so other papers from his desk, <laughs> letters from other friends, clippings from the newspaper, pages torn from a medical dictionary, and 10 or so pages from his diary. Getting such a package from a friend would be cause for concern, evidence of a cry for help, but with email, this is considered an acceptable sort of everyday carelessness. Am I right? Yeah. Email has now been around for 25 years, and in all that time, we haven't gotten any better at handling this not-so-complicated new form of communication. In fact, we accept every new violation of norms with an amiable shrug. When, in the early 2000s, Google let us know that bots would be reading our emails, and using information gleaned in these emails to better sell us stuff, we shrugged this same amiable shrug. Our emails are being read, hmm, we thought, a small price to pay in exchange for being able to send private messages to our friends, which will then be forwarded on to strangers. <laughs> now, <clears throat> you may have heard something about how, in the United States of America, a surge in white supremacist sentiment and action helped create a reality helped elect a reality television, create and elect a reality television host and accused rape rapist to the presidency. This happened a few years ago. Did that news <laughs> make it here? And by the way, I haven't been here in uh, a couple of years. Is anything going on? Anything <laughs> happened recently? It's, um, all right, we'll catch up later. We'll have a reception, you can fill me in. It turns out that the Russian government probably colluded with Julian Assange, both of whom probably colluded with Donald Trump and America's Ga Goebbels 
Steve Bannon, <laughs> who employed a digital research firm called Cambridge Analytical, Analytica, who accessed 150 million or so Facebook profiles and then targeted those voters with a barrage of propaganda in the hopes of electing a Russian puppet to lead the world's most powerful democracy. This all was something of a problem and definitely speaks to the kind of abuses made possible by the internet, its social media companies, their recklessness and laxity and disregard for rights and democracy and decency. But anyway, we probably don't have time to get into this particular aspect of situational internet madness, but let's keep it in our mind's eye during the telling of this next anecdote. A few months after the 2016 election, I traveled to North, rural North Carolina to report on a KKK rally that had been planned to celebrate the ascendance. Actually, I won't say, I won't say election. Um, it's up for grabs right now. I don't think we can use that uh, noun of Donald Trump. There were many hundreds of activists there to counter-protest the white supremacists, and Megan Squire was one of them. A professor of computer science at Elon University in North Carolina, Megan spent much of her free time in the anti-Trump resistance. Though that day in North Carolina was not so eventful, the KKK chickened out and demonstrated 45 minutes away in a motorcade that lasted all of a few minutes, Megan witnessed history a few months later when she attended the demonstrations in Charlottesville. She was a few feet away from the car that barreled into a crowd of protesters who were demonstrating against white supremacism. Heather Heyer was killed a few yards from where Megan was walking. Megan, in response to the rise in white supremacism in the US, created a database of all the neo-Nazis, KKK members, and sympathizers she could track down online. She called her database Whack-A-Mole. If they had posted in support of the KKK or other violent groups, she took down their names and cataloged their posts and soon had a list of 400,000, which she made available to agencies that track hate groups such as the Southern Poverty Law Center. Once her activities became known, she received countless death threats at her office and home. Visitors to right-wing websites made dozens of credible threats on her life. Her email address and physical address was posted online, subjecting her and her family to constant harassment. When Megan reported these instances to the police, police, mind you, in rural North Carolina, they did nothing. Then Megan's harassers went further. They killed her, on Facebook at least. One day she woke up to find that her Facebook page indicated that she was dead. Purple flowers surrounded her page. The flowers are free a service provided by Facebook to the bereaved. Megan's family and friends were distraught. Condolences rolled in. For five hours, Megan frantically tried to assure everyone she knew that she was indeed alive. But she couldn't post on her own Facebook page, which had been locked, as all memorialized accounts are. She couldn't log on to her own account, and she couldn't create a new account because she was dead. You may or may not know that Facebook allows anyone, truly anyone, to declare anyone else dead. Any Facebook user can pretend to be a relative or friend and declare any other Facebook user deceased. It takes only a few minutes and then the purple flowers embroider your page. To resurrect oneself on Facebook is much harder. Megan had to spend all day sending messages to Facebook whose representatives gave her forms to fill out and insisted that she take a selfie <laughs> while holding her driver's license. After five hours, Megan's account was restored. 
<clears throat> Someone named Jessie from Facebook's community operations apologized to her, but did nothing to pursue the matter further. Megan then noticed that whoever had engineered her death on Facebook had set up a separate page memorializing her death. On this page, dozens of notes had been posted by white supremacists and neo-Nazis celebrating her demise. Megan wrote to Facebook again, this time filing a complaint about this fake page memorializing her fake death, which had been clearly created by the same people who faked her death in the first place. She received a response from Facebook a few days later. It was a form letter with a subject header that read, thanks for your feedback. The letter asserted Facebook had reviewed the matter and had found that the neo-Nazi creators of the Facebook page that memorialized her death, even though she was not dead, had not violated the company's community standards. When Megan, let's pause there for a second. Um, all right, we're gonna pivot a little bit. When Megan Squire's death was first faked, one of her Facebook friends, an actual person, responded to her death, which he had every reason to believe was real, by typing four emojis onto her page, each of them a round face, a front-facing sort of Pac-Man, shedding tiny digital waterfall tears. You can laugh. We're going to go into a lighter moment here. By the wee photo of Megan's Facebook friend available next to his message, I can see that he seemed to be an adult male. Presumably, if the same adult man planned to send a condolence card in the mail to express his sorry, his sympathy, he wouldn't go to the local stationery shop and buy a card featuring cartoon faces shedding cartoon tears. That would be odd and not appreciated by her survivors. If he were to handwrite a card on his own stationery in an effort to express how he felt, he would not think to open his desk drawer and pull out a sheet of stickers choosing four front-facing Pac-Mans, crying. That would be considered strange and infantile. But online, upon learning of the death of a professor and mother of three, he chose four weeping Pac-Mans and pasted them onto her Facebook page. All this started with the like button. The four most depressing words any adult can utter are, like me on Facebook. <laughs> These words, which have been spoken by global leaders and CEOs and important poets and musicians, each time make the speaker, no matter how accomplished, into something much smaller, and they set human evolution back an epoch or two. <laughs> the like button, in many ways, was the beginning of the Internet's devolution from its potential as a democratizing global library of humankind's achievements to the digital equivalent of an eight-year-old sticker book circa 1981. I was a sticker collector myself, so I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that adults would accept a system whereby the value of their posts, initiatives, companies, artwork, music, photos, and human rights petitions were determined by likes was explainable only within the context of situational internet madness. Adults with PhDs sought likes, members of parliament sought likes, Successful and seemingly self-secure humans around the globe asked their real friends to be their friend on Facebook and then asked these friends to like them. <laughs> Sorry, that makes me laugh. <clears throat> on Facebook. Adults posted pictures of their food and waited for their digital friends to click that they liked the photo of their food. When the 
picture of their breakfast garnered more likes than the picture of their lunch, they fell into despair. <laughs> In a few short years, the globe had adopted a new neediness that was not about attention, not about just attention. It was about a sticker book version of attention that infantilized a billion people. It was akin to what an adult adult would do at a children's birthday party when asked to put on a tiny triangular birthday hat and sing the happy birthday song. The like button was that level of dignity, but Facebook wasn't a temporary hat. It was a hat that many of us wore, have been wearing every day for the past 15 years. The same weekend that I met Megan Steyer, I visited Squire, I visited one of my generation mates, a high school friend of mine who had become a psychologist serving the 20,000 or so students at another university in North Carolina. Actually, she had just quit that job. Her caseload, she said, had surged every year and she could no longer manage it and stay sane herself. Every year there were more college students who needed help, often within days of arriving at college, and those who needed help <clears throat> needed more help than ever before. They were stressed, depressed, anxious, and overwhelmed. They had trouble managing their time, managing expectations, and were generally incapable of coping with day-to-day -day life on their own. So many of her student clients had parents, <clears throat> and so many of these student clients had parents she called lawnmower parents. Whereas the helicopter parents of the early 2000s had hovered around their children, lawnmower parents did that, but added a propensity to mow down any obstacle in their child's way. It's a good term, right? Anybody hear that? The college students that my psychologist friend encountered had seldom had the chance to solve a problem on their own, largely because their parents were never out of touch. Now that these young people were in college and because the parents couldn't feed them and sign them up for classes, though they tried, <laughs> it's true, many students were quickly overwhelmed with the problem solving they had to do on their own. This gelled with something I'd been seeing myself on in campuses all over the country. It started five years ago when I was in a classroom at Virginia Commonwealth University, meeting about 40 freshmen, and we were talking about technology, surveillance, and privacy. We had been focusing on some of the themes of The Circle, a novel I wrote that speculates on where current and future technology might go. And first I asked them how many of them felt an uneasy relationship with their phones. All of them raised their hands. I asked them how many of them felt stressed by the demands of their friends through social media and texting made on their time. Most raised their hands. Then the discussion veered into territory I didn't know much about. That was parents surveilling their college-age children. One young woman, a freshman, mentioned that even though she was in college, her parents regularly tracked her location and online activities using her smartphone. This student said she was, in fact, being tracked at that moment. A few student heads nodded in agreement. Another student raised her hand. She said she'd recently gotten a text from her mom who had seen something called the Big Party, an all-campus event at VCU meant to welcome the freshmen to campus, mentioned on her Facebook feed. What's this party you going to? The mother wanted to know. A debate ensued about whether or not the student was allowed to attend. Her mother, it should be noted, was 2,000 miles away. I asked the rest of the students how many of them were being regularly monitored by their parents. About half of the room raised their hands. The experience at Virginia Commonwealth was no anomaly. About half of all the college students I met over the next few weeks were under surveillance 
by their mom and dad. Another student said his father regularly tracks whether he's at the classes he's scheduled to attend. <clears throat> the other, the, sorry about that. I, uh, missing a paragraph. Um, there was another student um, that was a call, she received a call, she was going off campus to get uh, supplies at the local at Target. And uh, when her mom saw that she was no longer on campus, the phone rang because she was on a road that was not within the campus boundaries and the mom wanted to know where she was going. So this is all troubling, but possibly more troubling was that most of the students I met didn't have an overwhelming problem with any of this. There were rolled eyes from some recalling their parents' efforts to keep tabs on them, but in general, the students were not so troubled by it because they had been tracked most of their lives and have grown to expect and even desire constant parental contact. Those of us who went to college in the 20th century will remember calling home once a week at most, and even then relaying as much as little information as humanly possible. Now though, there is the availability of or even expectation of constant communication between students and their parents, and there are quick and punitive res results for students who don't answer their phones when parents call. The parents who pay the bills can shut down the phones temporarily or revoke them permanently. And of course, a good percentage of these young people have been tracked throughout their adolescence. The move for parents to track their children, especially those under 18, is so tidal that apps and wearable devices, new apps and wearable devices appear weekly. One app called Teen Safe allows a parent to track not just their child's location, but also to read all of their texts, phone logs, apps used, and websites visited. There are dozens of apps like this, and many are even more invasive. This kind of interdependency has dual deleterious effects. A, a young person whose movements are being monitored and second-guessed can't make mistakes and learn from them and thus can never become truly independent. Such students either wither under the pressures of semi-independent life or worse, they accept a life under close scrutiny. And this kind of passivity can make a person disturbingly tolerant of other, less well-intentioned kinds of surveillance. For example, that practiced by the NCA, NSA, or far worse and more, and more punitive government surveillance agencies in less free societies. I screwed that sentence up, but you get my point. The pressures on young people are not just coming from outside forces. There are interpersonal expectations that so dwarf anything any generation has faced before. When I talk to college students, they are extremely thoughtful and self-aware about what they're up against. They are invariably conflicted about their phones, their online lives, and their use of digital tools. More than anything else, they feel helpless to exit a hyperloop they've been on since they were given phones in the first place. I've talked to so many students that I'll make an amalgam that averages out their experiences. Let's imagine a 20-year-old college sophomore who will be representative of thousands more. The student who will call Teresa sends and receives a total of about 220 texts a day. This is low for many students, but believable for a robust user. Teresa maintains an Instagram page, which she updates twice a day. 
She follows about 60 other Instagram pages. She does not tweet, but follows 20 or so Twitter feeds. She checks the news about five times a day in various ways. She gets four to five calls from her mom throughout the day, usually just checking in. She calls, her, she calls her mom twice a day when she has a question about something specific, like how to remove a certain stain from a certain material. She watches about 30 short videos on her phone throughout the day and about an hour of television. She does some research on her phone, but saves some from her laptop, which she generally keeps in her dorm. There was a dating app at her college that she checks periodically. Her friend signed her up for Tinder, and she spends about 20 minutes a day on that. She stays in touch with eight to 10 high school friends a day who are spread out throughout the country. At least once a day, she gets in trouble with one of them for being too slow to respond to a text. She has a Facebook page, but doesn't use it as much as she did last year. When she logs on, there are usually about 10 friend requests she has to respond to and about 85 messages she needs to read, about half of which require a direct response. Others require likes. Her university sends her texts and notices through various portals, sometimes 10 notices a day, from safety alerts to on-campus events and notices about class registrations. She sends about six texts or Facebook messages a day to her professors and teaching assistants. They send her about five back. A few of her classes have online forums and use Google Docs where they share information and collaborate on projects. In addition to the texts that she sends to friends and family, she estimates that she gets and receives another 25 messages from anyone from her podiatrist to a local shoe store to the person back home who shampoos her dog. That comes to about 245 messages a day of varying lengths and levels of urgency. That's a lot, right? Again and again, the students I've talked to complain about the expectations put upon them. They feel pressure all the time, and it seems to be coming from a thousand angles. They don't sleep as much as they should, which adds to their jittery sense that they're in the middle of a hundred incomplete tasks. And so much of it returns to their uneasy relationship with their phones, to which they and perhaps a billion people feel addicted. Because they have phones and everyone they know has a phone, there's always someone trying to reach them. And if someone is always trying to reach you, you live in an eternal state of either being interrupted or disappointing whoever it is who is trying to interrupt you. This is a significant amount of pressure for anyone. Now remember that Teresa is only 20. My psychologist friend reminds me that the human brain doesn't fully develop until 25. Now remember that all these responsibilities and expectations are fully outside of why she's at college in the first place, which is to devote most of her time and mind to her classes. Though every generation demonstrates a phenomenal ability to adjust to new circumstances and pressures, there might be a limit to just how much information and how many requests, answers, communications, relationships, news alerts, and questions about dog shampoo one person can maintain without burning out. It's important to note in all of this that it turns out that parents are not required by law to give their children smartphones. And no one is required to submit all their personal data to Facebook to enrich a small coterie of people who model themselves after, or are, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> I looked into it, I did the research, and found no laws anywhere in the world that require us to do this. And even in Silicon Valley, there is no local ordinance that mandates either. In fact, no one is more skeptical about the use of social media and smartphones among young people than the makers of smartphones and social media platforms. Sean Parker, who is widely credited with growing Facebook from a Harvard dorm room project into a global behemoth, recently said about social media, God knows what it's doing to our children's brains. 
Athena Chavaria was once an executive assistant at Facebook and now works at the company's philanthropic arm, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. I am convinced, she said, the devil lives in our phones and is wreaking havoc on our children. She did not allow her children to have phones until high school. Her mantra was, the last kid in class to get a phone wins. Chris Anderson, the former editor-in-chief of Wired, said of screens and kids, on a scale between candy and crack cocaine, it's closer to crack cocaine. This is beyond our capacity as regular parents to, uh, to understand. He has five children and said that his family, quote, glimpsed the chasm of addiction, and there were some lost years which we feel bad about, end quote. Bill and Melinda Gates banned cell phones for their own children until they were teenagers, and Melinda has since said they wish they had waited longer. Many articles have been written about the extraordinarily high percentage of tech world titans who send their children to Waldorf schools, which ban all technology at school and in the homes of their students. Steve Jobs, inventor of the iPad, would not let his young children use them. It is absolutely beyond debate that millions of kids and teens use phones without any adverse effects. They find a healthy balance and their families have no struggle with tech at all. I know a few such families. I know more families who have been brought to the brink. Families who have become a nest of spies and double agents. Families crushed by the, you wanna hear a story? Um, there's a friend of mine that, he's like a very technological, tech-savvy guy who's been uh, around San Francisco a long time, and he thought he was punishing his teen son for something, and he said, you don't get to use your phone at home. When you come in for dinner and, and uh, going to bed, you can't have it in your bedroom. You gotta check it in a box, put it in a box, and, I, and we're gonna hide the box from you, and when you're home, you're home. And uh, this worked for about six months until he realized that the son had been putting a dummy phone <laughs> in the box every day. I mean, spy versus spy stuff, right? All right. Families who have become a nest of spies and double agents, families crushed by the pull of the digital world, families dealing with porn addictions in their nine-year-olds, adult stalkers intrigued by their 11-year-olds, suicide attempts from their 12-year-olds. We do have power here, but we need to exercise it from a place of common sense. We must remember, for instance, that smartphones are still phones. They're also televisions and video games and there are some places where their presence is comically illogical. My psychologist friend in North Carolina is married to a high school teacher. He teaches at a highly diverse school whose students are generally from low-income households, but who are still dedicated to their children going to college. Still, my teacher friend says that 100% of his students have smartphones and bring them not just to school, but to class. And he is not allowed to prohibit their use in class. Some teachers challenged this, but lost given parents insisted they needed to be able to reach their children immediately in case of emergency. For one final time, let's picture the pre-digital version of this scenario. Because smartphones have only existed for 10 years, we don't have to go far back. Using the same rationale that parents had the right to reach their children at all times and each at their own phone number, this would have entailed setting up a standard analog phone with buttons and base and receiver at each of the 32 desks in the class. Picture even two of these phones ringing in any hour long period. It's beyond absurd, but we're living in this reality now. 
Teachers and students are adjusting and doing their best, but it is plainly insane. And it is enabled entirely by the parents who cannot abide a few hours where they must trust and not track their children. In August of 2017, a monumental study of the effect of social media usage among young people was published in the journal Clinical Psychological Science. Citing data from over 500,000 adolescents, it found that between 2010 and 2015, a record number of teenagers were reporting symptoms of depression. Suicide rates had surged during this period after declining for the two decades, decades prior. Particularly vulnerable were girls and young women. Jean Twinge, one of the authors of the study, tied the surge of depression and suicide rates to the advent and increasing ubiquity of smartphones. It was the only factor in teens' lives that had changed during the period of the study. Teens who spent more than a few hours on their phones, Twinge reported, had skyrocketing rates of suicidal tendencies. Those who spent five hours or more on their phones were 71% more likely to have at least one risk factor for suicide. Separately, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that suicide rates for American girls aged 15 to 19 doubled between 2007 and 2015 to a 40-year high. This rise corresponded directly with the rise in the popularity of social media, first on laptops, then on smartphones. Gene Twinge's report made the news around the world and prompted much thoughtful discussion about what should be done. Notably, no major tech companies made any comment about the report. Well, one of them did, in a way. A few months after the August 2017 release of the report, which detailed the towering health risks associated with young people's use of phones and social media, Facebook introduced Messenger for Kids, which targeted children under 13. So yes, we are entirely the problem. Nothing is being done to us that compares to what we have been doing to ourselves. We have walked straight into every horrible consequence of our current technological dystopia and with open eyes. All the warnings have been out there for a long time, but regardless, a thousand times over, we have opted in. Every bad behavior exhibited by every tech company is mirrored by bad behaviors we exhibit our ourselves. We complain that tech companies are spying on us, but we spy on each other just as much or more. We complain that tech companies are careless with our data, but we are just as careless with everything we post and send online. We violate each other's privacy 100 times a day. Online, we are reckless and careless and have forgotten every basic rule of etiquette and consideration. And for reasons that are still unclear, we become less polite, less considerate, less rational. We become unequivocally and explicably stranger people when we are online. And every time we move another aspect of our lives into the digital realm, that part of life gets weirder, period. And beyond it getting weirder, everything that goes online becomes more likely to suffer abuse. And every time we move another part of our lives online, we get closer to what I'll call the sim singularity, whereby everything we do has been documented in one aggregated data set, culled from all our social media and all the data collected on us, knowingly or not, all the surveillance we do ourselves and allow us to be done to us. You probably know that in China, they are putting finishing touches on their program to issue each citizen a social credit score. This score will aggregate everything, a person's history of parking tickets, grades in college, social media posts, run-ins with the law, ability to pay bills on time. All of it will go into a score which will define that person's honesty 
and viability as a citizen. If you have a high score, you'll be afforded perks like cheaper tickets to movies. If your score is not so high, well, let's assume that in an autocracy or all but the most liberal democracies, you're fucked. <laughs> Could such an all-encompassing score ever become a reality in a liberal democracy? Could de democratic countries ever allow a numerical value to be attached to each of its citizens, a number that would then determine their access to jobs, housing, and a hundred other opportunities? Would we ever allow an opaque body answerable to no one determine who has access to opportunity? The answer is, of course, and it will come soon. If we allow impenetrable for-profit credit rating agencies to determine our access to jobs, housing, rentals, and home ownership, then we will accept any numerical determination of our own worth. So that sucks. And yet, there might be light ahead. And this is, I'll just tell this one last anecdote. A few months ago, I um, spoke at a high school in Texas. It was a huge high school, 3,000 students. And um, I asked about 300 of them in a smaller group. I said, how many of you uh, are uneasy with your relationship with tech? Everybody raised their hand. How many of you are unsure about the uh, uh, trustworthiness of the tech companies. All of them raised their hand. This is a radical shift from five years before when I first was on tour at the Circle where most people were still trusting the tech companies and their motives and, and uh, way of doing business and they thought I was a cranky old uh, freak. And, um, but it's changed drastically, especially in the last few years. And then I said, well, how many of you guys are on Facebook? And out of 300 people, one hand went up. And when I visited with them, they still use Snapchat and they communicate with each other in private ways, but um, they had pivoted hard because one, they see Facebook as the social media form of their parents and grandparents. So funny. And I talked with a, a girl and her mom, she was 17 and her mom was my age, and, uh, uh, which is 36. And so uh, <laughs> I um, just left that hanging. Um, so, uh, and she said, you know, I'm so embarrassed when my mom will post photos of me at my birthday, my mom posts photos of me at the beach, and, um, and everyone that she knows will see these f posts, like everyone from relatives to the mailman, you know? And she considered it so random and such a daily violation. And we've had instances, many instances in the US of, parent, of kids suing their uh, parents for oversharing. And there's this word now called sharenting, <laughs> where parents overshare, kids resent it. And this sharenting actually, Barclays did some study that said that by 2030, it's going to be uh, the main reason and the main uh, uh, enabler of uh, identity theft, because parents will share everything about their kids, birthdays, all this other information that thieves and bad actors can aggregate and use for ill. And so this 17-year-old talking with her mom, they were so funny bantering back and forth because the mom was proud of her daughter and her kids and wanted to post all this stuff. But at the same time, the mom had said, don't post scary stuff. You know, don't be careful of what you post. Be careful of this. You might not get into college. You won't get a job. Your social media uh, presence lives forever. So they internalized this, the next generation, after the current college kids, and had gone pivoted hard the other way and said, I'm not going to be 
like my mom, embarrassing, oversharing, sharenting, humiliating uh, use of social media. I'm going to communicate privately, directly with just a few people. And so it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe the generation after has learned from uh, their parents and that we might be on a better track. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome, Philippe Sands, back to the stage. Um, That's pretty horrible. You know, I had some... But, but, um, you, but you seem optimistic as a person. Yeah, I, I am in general. I'm always optimistic. But I think um, what I... But the thing that's, that has intrigued me ever since those first days in San Francisco is how normalized the strangest behavior has become in everyone we know and in, in, in ourselves and the stuff that we do, you know? Um, I had a whole passage about men watching porn at work, you know, which is like a whole nother thing. You can laugh, you know, because this was a thing, especially, you know, you would not see a guy pack up his VHS tapes and magazines in his briefcase, click, click, and then go off to the office, but some unmentionable percentage of men have or regularly do watch it at work. And so I think that what we have to remember is that... Um, we have a long way to go to reinvent and reinvent ourselves in the digital world and remember that this sort of early on, especially in San Francisco, it was very much anything goes. There wasn't, there was, and there's still no regulation or ethical boundaries that anybody's drawn. But we exhibit it every day where we think like things that you would never do in the real world, it's okay there. And it's allowed across the board from the most gentlemanly people to, uh, you know, your, uh, your mom, you know? I want to put this in the context because you alluded and you wrote, you wrote a wonderful piece in the Guardian Observer a few, a couple of weeks ago on aspects of this proposing, and you hinted at it, changes to the rules that we have. You suggested modifying aspects of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, 
drafted in 1948, way before any of this was known. But just before we get to that, one of the themes that runs through all of this, you didn't address it head on, but it's definitely there, is that there are a small number of players making vast sums of money out of this. Yeah. Huge sums of money. It's not that it is not for profit. It's not that out of the goodness of their hearts, people are acting. It's that a structure is being created in which a small number of players are getting vast income. I mean, income that dwarfs, for example, the income of many countries yeah. and states and provinces, and which gives them in the global sphere a tremendous power. It's how, how, how do we begin to address that monetized reality? Well, it's so funny because it's, you know, I, I, I personally don't think Facebook is here forever. I think it, I think it, uh, they will be a, a company. They own and they, they will continue to, to acquire the next thing like Snapchat and uh, other, uh, um, you know, platforms and apps that are going to be, that are going to replace them. But I think as a way of communicating and, and monetizing data, I think that that's, not necessarily the future. Um, and so it'll be interesting to know, I mean, to see where they go and what their, I mean, already their, you know, their valuation keeps dipping a little bit with increased regulations here and there. But I think that the same way that we had Friendster and we had MySpace and we had a lot of the other uh, AOL and um, things in the, in the 90s and the early aughts, like, um, these do, these do have a, these programs do have a half-life and we do change our behaviors. And so I think that, I keep thinking that at some point, and with Cambridge Analytical, maybe it was a turning point, people would be so disgusted, I think, by the business practices. I mean, they, today there was a breach where they realized that they gave away the photos of some five million people mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and said, oops, you know, I mean, there's no security, there's no boundaries that they observe. So as a company, I think that they're always the one, that every day there's some new violation. They just can't be trusted with our data. But sharing your photos online and communicating with friends, that should be something that is not fraught with violations, with human rights abuses, with uncertainty, and with the prospect that there's going to be unlimited and, and continuous Breaches. You know what I mean? It shouldn't be that creepy. It shouldn't be that fraught. And so, you know, there's a new, I met this guy in San Francisco a couple of years ago, started something called MeWe. And it's like, it looks exactly like Facebook, does all the same stuff, but it's a nonprofit. And so you, if, you, if anybody and their friends just moves their coterie over to MeWe, then that's a blow against the... Uh, the tyranny of Facebook. I suppose the, the reason that I put that on the table, the, the, the rise and rise and rise of the corporate sector, is that the way the world was structured in 1948, if we go back to that moment when a group of mostly men, but not only, signed a piece of paper called the Universal Declaration, was it assumed the world was divided into a small number of territories called states, and the states had a power and had a regulatory authority and the idea of the Universal Declaration was that for the first time the power of the state 
over the people who lived in that territory would no longer be unlimited. There would be prohibitions on torture, prohibitions on limiting freedom of expression, and so on and so forth. You've described a sort of technological world that has emerged. But the other thing, of course, that's transformed is this sort of binary world of states and citizens mm. has gone. How do you begin to regulate this? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights imposes obligations on states, not on corporations. So you've got a structural issue. Yeah. But I think, you know, the thing I wrote in The Guardian was just saying, like, it, it, the, the Universal Declaration gives us a starting point. If, you, if, if, if all the rights and obligations that are outlined in that document are observed in the digital world, then we're halfway there or more. But they're not. And I outlined a few of them, you know, starting with, you know, no Article 12, no one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence, no attacks about upon his honor or reputation. Now, all of those, I mean, that's one sentence that basically right. encompasses all of the worst abuses online. And the weirdest thing about, we don't even think about because we, we give them a free pass to sort of do things that would never be done in the print world, for example. It's not covered by the free uh, First Amendment in the same way, but every day online, there's at least a billion slanders, right? And libels. And, and why, and that's never thought of as, uh, it's not held to the same standards as if a newspaper had printed all of these things in their letter section, for example. And all of these sort of basic regulations that govern every other medium of communication, radio, all has regulatory bodies, television, it certainly does, cable and print. And then the internet, no regulation. No, it's, it's, it's not right that there's no regulation. I mean, there's less regulation in the United States because of the First Amendment freedom of expression, which there is no absolute equivalent, yeah. for example, in this country. But what happens, of course, is that when each of us switches on our computer and accesses a website, we either tick a box, as now happens in the European context, or are understood implicitly to have granted something called consent. Yeah. We have agreed to this. Yeah. And that is the heart of the problem, actually. And right. it's, as you were talking, it reminded me, it's a bit like smoking. The argument always was that people who took up smoking in the 40s and the 50s consented. But there wasn't a government health warning. There wasn't any health warning. And that struck me as the sort of analogy that yeah, no, I mean, that's always been my analogy. I covered the tobacco industry, and I covered the first trial in the US where they won. So it's one lawyer, Woody Wilner, who won a case against the tobacco company, and that broke it all open. Um, but there's also complicity, you know? My father died of lung cancer after smoking for 30-odd years, and he knew the risks every day, and he was addicted, and they created an addicted pro uh, product, just as they do at... Uh, at so many of these tech companies, they know what's addictive and they go for, you know, uh, Tristan Harris is an apostate from uh, Google that has laid out all of these sort of addictive properties and the engineering that goes into them. But at the same time, we, we do have options and we do have agency too. We aren't purely Eloy, you know, being harvested um, by uh, the evil uh, Morlocks of Silicon Valley. But I think that we do have to recognize that and use that agency 
to bring our business elsewhere, whether it's to a nonprofit site. Often people talk about having government um, funded or, uh, or, or uh, search engines, you know, just like you Library of Congress or something like that. There are so many options, but in the US at least, in an unprecedented way, the tech companies have been given an absolute free hand. And the grilling that Zuckerberg gets in Europe is nowhere like he gets in the US. And people sort of, there's a sort of a really radical kind of pride, I think, in their, their the, the uh, meteoric rise of these companies and their, and their value and the, and the newness of it that sort of supersedes everybody's kind of queasiness about uh, how they go about it. Maybe it's not so new looking at it in that model. Maybe it follows the model of big oil, which was essentially unregulated for, for the first 30 or 40 years. Now, of course, we have a climate change context crisis, and these, those companies are under serious scrutiny. Tobacco, pharmaceuticals, is it that we're just in the early first 10, 15, 20 years, and your lecture inscribes itself as that sort of part of that catalytic moment where we are suddenly realizing that which has overwhelmed us? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I hope that because it is, I mean, I, I'd give it 25 years since like Netscape and 92 and all the sort of the, the big search engines and the, and the company started. Uh, growing and then, you know, there's a second wave after that tech bust in, in 99 and 2000. And that was sort of like the new web, you know, where this, uh, where this certain companies emerged. But I think that we do have to really put a pause button on our own uh, complicity in the surveillance part of it. And in the datification, every time we accept numbers, whether it's credit ratings that we accept completely um, acquiesce to in the US. They run our lives. If you don't have, get this, if you don't have a credit rating, you cannot rent an apartment in the US. How do you get a credit rating? You get a credit card, ideally three. And you have to have them for 18 months and show a regular payment. So you have to buy stuff on three credit cards to have a credit rating to rent an apartment. Now that seems a little wrong, right? But we acquiesce to it because it seems, I don't know, orderly in a way that we've given a number and below 600 you're not human and above it you can, you can live. And um, so I think that we as humans, and this is what's interesting to me, is that we do like this sort of false finality of numbers. We, 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 we get into college based on a certain score the, the credit ratings that we're, we're very happy to do, our movies that we're very happy to have given a percentage. This, this movie's got a 67%, so I'll go see it. Like every single thing keeps moving into this data set. And between that and the tracking, we are about to have all of these things kind of click into place. And, um, and I don't think that we're putting up much of a fight. And, through sort of the, some of the funnier examples, I'm just trying to point out that we use these tools the same way that they get used on us. And I think that if we, we really have to like really examine every time that we read hacked emails from Hillary or Sony or something like that. We're complicit. 
We're complicit, what's, for sure. What's, what's your own complicity? What do you use and not use? Everything. I've done every one of these things, what do you, for sure. So right now, your, what phone do you use? Do you have a, I read well, somewhere I, you had a computer that wasn't connected to the internet. Yeah, I don't have internet at home, and I don't have a, I have a flip phone. Yeah. But um, that's because I cannot be trusted with these devices, you know? <laughs> I would do everything that I say that we should not do. Um, it's all too tempting and addictive and fun in a way, too. Um, but we do have to sort of set an example in a weird way. And so I actually have to like keep myself away. The, the, the hacked emails was a real existential kind of moment. Like, can I read this? This is reading some, this is private correspondence that was hacked by North Korea. And we all read these things. And it was in the New York Times in every paper. That's a horrifying moment. We did not have a right to read those, especially it was ill-gotten gain, you know? And so, so many of these things are like the, you know, the fruit of the poison tree, and we just keep eating that. And what about your next generation, your children? We all, I have children, you have children. What, what is, because I have to say my own children seem pretty so, I mean, they use this stuff yeah. way beyond what I do. It's uh, just like anything. Not everyone dies of smoking either. It's only a third, right? That's a lot of people. Um, I'm not saying that we're dying of social media, but I, I do think that very often uh, one tool, the same tool in one kid's hands is fine. This is something that happened um, six months ago. I get invited to like tech dinners and stuff. Like, I, Despite your lectures or your one lecture. One of my friends from uh, Salon started Flickr, for example. And um, a lot of these people I've known since we were in our 20s, they went on to do things. I have friends that work at every one of these companies. And almost invariably, these are like very nice people who are idealistic. They don't necessarily see. And a lot of them are conflicted, too. Or they've moved on. They've, they've retired themselves out of the positions of power. And they've left uh, the next stage to younger people. But we had this dinner. About 18 people there, and a lot of important tech people. And the dinner was supposed to be about something else. And what it went into was that all, all of their kids struggling. Three of the families at that table had, at that moment, their kids were in wilderness detox camps. So in the US, you send your kids to Idaho or Montana <laughs> for like a month-long detox. And uh, I have another friend whose son is there right now. And um, I wrote the recommendation to get him into it. Because um, they need recs now, because these are like sought after detox programs. So, um, and one of my friends who had been with me in the South Park days, she said she lost her daughter at 12. And so that's what sort of drove kind of the lectury part of this, which I don't like to lecture. And I put all of these thoughts in kind of a more fictional, sublimating form, you know, with the circle. I thought, okay, I'm going to put it in that form. And this, I never wanted to be the one that's like yelling, but I got really, um, I got upset and, uh, and I felt like something had really pivoted uh, between the research that is very uh, um, scary and between seeing all of these old friends of mine who know everything about tech and still thought that they could handle it and they lost their kids, you know, um, <coughs> who just became somebody else. And I thought, okay, Sometimes these tools are too powerful for somebody who's 11, you know? Mm -hmm. Drinking from the fire hose doesn't begin to describe it. 
it's not the same as playing Frogger or Pac-Man when we were kids. It's not the same. It's not the same as TV that has just sort of a one-way uh, interface. It's, uh, it's much different. And I think, um, I think we just have to like examine all of these things and examine it, experiment, know that we have other ways. And then my last point with the Declaration of Human Rights is that we increasingly have got to be able to give We've got to be given a way to live an analog life. You want us to be human. You want us to carry on. I liked us before. You know, I liked a lot of, I liked, I liked human. You know, I've never had an in-person like fight like people have online. You know, in person, it's just we have a chemical thing where we want to get along. So no matter if I'm at a Trump rally, I'm getting along with all the Trump people. It's so weird, but we want to get along talk to each other and stuff. Nobody's spitting in my face or anything like that. Like, and I'm white, you know, I guess that helps, you know, if you're at a Trump rally. But, but still, I think invariably we do have a different thing when humans share body heat and like bonnet and, and it's what passes between the, and the nuances side. of the facial and, uh, and the uh, uh, um, body language. And everything is very, is, is disembodied and different online. And I think that the more we move everything there, and in the US, we keep moving even education online. So the same people that say, educators that say, screen time, it's killing my classroom, and my kids are, my students are distracted, they will still send the homework home online. So we don't have internet at home, we have to go to the library and access the homework. And it's like, well, that's a mixed message probably, right? If we don't want more screen time, but we keep doing it that way. It's another new thing that just happened in the US, it's spreading out because it's so expensive to grade yearly exams about student competence with writing, they now have algorithms that do it. So in Utah and Ohio and now a few other states, they send them through a machine and the machine uh, reads them and grades it on a, on a, on a uh, scale of one to six because it's cheap. And there's a, all these people are some believers in it, but I would find that that's a little dehumanizing and think about the value that we put on the young people's words, their thoughts and, every, and their ability to express themselves at age 17. We say that we don't have enough money to pay people to read these essays. It's okay to have algorithms do it. No controversy whatsoever in the states that have adopted it. So I think that, you know. It, you're pushing with me at an open door. I mean, in my world of the law, there is a lot of talk now about just doing away with the courtroom, with living human people, and having judges by algorithm yeah. courtroom run virtually. It is. It's happening in um, uh, bail bail yeah, uh, amounts right now. Happen. Algorithms will determine the bail amount for uh, uh, yeah. uh, somebody, uh, 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 a uh, defendant, and um, no controversy there either. I fear we have run out of time. I could listen to you forever. Um, yeah. You've inspired us, and Dave Eggers, you've really made us think. Thank you. Um, thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out, supporting Ken. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.